This session is from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. More information, please visit shepherds360.org. I might go ahead and get started. I thought this was supposed to start at 10.15, but I, I think y'all's last thing ran over. But uh, anyway, there there is so much to talk about. So I'm Ingrid Skop. If anybody wasn't in one of the prior sessions, um, I'm an obstetrician gynecologist. Can you tell? Oops. I'm not. I'm, my slides aren't up yet. Oh, let me see if I can figure this one out. Um, there we are. Can you tell where I'm from based on my picture? Every Texan has to have blue bonnets in their, in their slides, so uh, proudly Texan. Um, I'm also the vice president and director of medical affairs of the Charlotte Lozier Institute. And if you're not familiar with Lozier, um, you need to be because our mission is science and statistics on life issues. And I think you all recognize it is so hard to find good evidence-based information about abortion. Um, Oh, and by the way, all of these slides are available through the little scanny. Um, so you don't necessarily, I mean, you can take notes if you want, but you don't necessarily have to because you can get all of these. And if you were in, not in the previous sessions, you can get those slides as well. So um, my email's here, um, and I'm happy to field questions if anybody has anything particular they want to talk about or just anything in general. Um, when you get on the Charlotte Lozier, it's lozierinstitute.org website. There's a lot of information. If there's something you're interested in and you can't find information, we've got a 1,000 papers on the website, so chances are it's there, but our search engine could use some improving. So just reach out to me, and I'll, I'll help you find that information. Um, so I practiced as an obstetrician for 25 years. About a year and a half ago, I went to Lozier, and it was just before the Dobbs decision. So it has been my pleasure and privilege to advocate for women and their children by just giving people information. Um, and today's topic um, is um, abortion myths. And I woke up last night just thinking of additional topics that I wanted to add because there's so many myths out there. So I'm addressing, I think, some common ones. Um, but I realize that there's just really just misinformation and gaslighting everywhere on this topic in our country. Um, so things we're going to discuss, contraception, how is it related to abortion? What should the church's role be? Should we be neutral because this is a political issue or is this an intensely moral issue that we should be addressing? Is it essential reproductive health care? Is chemical abortion safer than Tylenol or penicillin? Um, is it true that abortion does not affect a woman's mental health? Um, and do women choose abortion freely? Is this a way that they're expressing their um, autonomy, um, empowering? Are late-term abortions rare and only performed for compelling reasons? Are babies ever born alive after abortion? And um, surely these children can't feel pain, right, when they're being dismembered? Um, Pro-life laws, will they kill women? Um, and is abortion safer than childbirth? And of course, most people who advocate for abortion will acknowledge that the unborn is a living human being. That's pretty scientifically well, dis well established. But they'll say, but you know, women need this. And so we'll kind of look into that. Do women need this? Has the last 50 years improved women's life with the ability to end the lives of their children? 
So to start with, um, contraception, as you probably know, is an action taken before the act of intercourse, and its intent is to prevent the egg and the sperm from coming into contact, from forming a new human being. Um, two broad categories. Um, hormonal methods generally will um, uh, prevent ovulation. They'll prevent the release of the egg. Uh, barrier methods will just block so that the sperm and the egg cannot reach each other. Emergency contraception similarly has the intent of preventing this new life from forming. It's an action taken after the act of unprotected intercourse. Plan B is probably the most commonly known hormonal emergency contraception. It is basically high dose of progesterone. It prevents the luteinizing hormone surge that causes ovulation. So if it's taken at the correct time, it's pretty efficient in preventing pregnancy because the egg is delayed until after the sperm have died. Unfortunately, it doesn't work all that well because um, if the woman has already ovulated, it really has very little effect. Um, I recognize that there's concern theoretically that all of these methods have very effective pre-fertilization mechanisms of action. So I, I believe that they really do a good job of preventing an embryo from forming. And yet, Every method can have failures. In every method, I have cared for women who've had healthy pregnancies. So on the other end of things, many babies, if it fails and an embryo is produced, many babies continue to live. The question is, is there something about these methods that could have a post-fertilization effect? The sad part of that is there's really very little scientific desire to know the answer to this question, very little research being done on it. We can't until a pregnancy implants in the uterus, we can't measure beta HCG, so we don't know it exists. However, we do know that approximately 50% of uh, cycles of unprotected intercourse result in an embryo that does not implant. So it happens very, very frequently that embryos are created and somehow that process is very inefficient that causes them to implant. So as a gynecologist, bottom line is I don't worry that birth control is going to cause an abortion. I think if it happens, it's extraordinarily rare. Um, but I do know that 40% of women who have an unplanned pregnancy choose abortion. And so I think we kind of have to weigh those, um, those issues. An abortion, on the other hand, is an action taken with the intent of ending the unborn human life that is already known to exist. This can be either mechanical through surgical means or pharmaceutical um, with chemical abortion. Um, so again, we all know that this is a unique human being who has inherent dignity who is alive, his life is ended in abortion. But, and so the church should care about this. Obviously, this is an intrinsically moral issue. Um, but also, abortion affects the women in the pews. Uh, one out of four women um, is estimated to have had an abortion. Guttmacher has surveyed them to find out their religion. 24% are Catholic, 17% Protestant, 13% Evangelical. At least one in five men have also been affected by the loss of a child through abortion. And these women who fall into abortion in crisis, they acknowledge they know it's immoral and that it ends a human life. And yet they find themselves in a situation where they don't think there's another option. Uh, the American church, it turns out, is very confused. Um, you may be familiar with the Barna survey from a couple of years ago that documented that more than half of Americans 
thought they had a biblical worldview, but when they were actually queried about what the Bible says and what they believe, it turns out that only about 6% did. Um, only 60% as an example of Christians believe that life is sacred. I thought that was pretty much common knowledge, but apparently not. Um, many of these Christians um, believe that the Bible is ambiguous or doesn't discuss abortion. Um, 44% of evangelicals, 62% of Protestants, and 58% of Catholics. Um, another survey from earlier this year documented that among regular churchgoers, 16% admitted to having been involved in an abortion, either a woman who chose it, a man who um, uh, paid for it, or someone else who pressured someone into an abortion. So the reality is there are women sitting in every church who are, and men who are suffering, who need reconciliation, who need repentance. And if their church doesn't approach, address that issue from the pulpit, they may not have the chance to get their lives right with God. Um, when we asked the churchgoers about their feelings about abortion, 27%, um, only a little over a quarter, said they were pro-life without exceptions. 36% said they were pro-life, but they felt that there were some circumstances where it was okay to end this life. 22% were pro-choice or unsure, and more than half wanted their church to teach more about abortion. So very quickly, you guys are probably all familiar, but the Bible talks a lot about unborn life uh, and about the dignity of human beings. Um, Genesis tells us God created mankind in his image, male and female. Job tells us that he clothed both Job and others with skin, flesh, bone, and nerves. Psalms, of course, this beautiful um, poetry describes how God intricately wove humans together um, before anyone could see them. Um, Jeremiah and Isaiah confirmed that God had plans for them and for us prior to our birth. Um, for those who think that it's okay to have exceptions, um, uh, the Bible actually tells us about that as well. Exodus talks about God really reprimanding Moses, saying, who has made the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I, the Lord? Um, and Isaiah, of course, has the story of the clay um, admonishing the potter because he doesn't think his work is appropriate. Um, concerning things to come, do you question me about my children or give me orders about the works of my hands? Obviously, it can be hard to understand why some children have such life-limiting problems, but we need to acknowledge God created them, and it is the ultimate in hubris for us to say that a, a creation of God's does not deserve to continue to live. And similarly, Deuteronomy tells us that children should not be put to death for the sins of their fathers. Proverbs tells us what we should do, rescue those being led away to death, hold back those staggering toward the slaughter. And um, those of you in this room, you cannot say we knew nothing because now you know, um, and God knows that this is an issue that is very, very important to him. So what about abortion as, re as essential reproductive health care? Um, health care, one definition is maintenance and restoration of the health of the body or mind. Obviously, this um, applies to prenatal care and delivery of babies, but not to disrupting a normal physiologic process and ending human life. It's important to know that only 7 to 14% of obstetricians who are surveyed say that they would perform an elective abortion if requested by their patient. Unfortunately, in medicine, um, there's a disconnect. Many obstetricians will say they're pro-choice, but they will not get their hands dirty 
doing the actual abortion. Um, obviously, if this were a necessary health care, every one of us who are women's health care providers would provide that action. And the fact that so many don't gives lie to that narrative. And what is medicine about anyway? How do we contribute to human flourishing? Um, the Hippocratic Oath, as you know, very few medical schools actually recite this part of the Hippocratic Oath anymore because so many of these medical schools are trying to encourage their students to provide abortions, to provide physician-assisted suicide. Um, but originally, we took an oath not to do so. Uh, medical ethics has four main principles. Beneficence is favoring the well-being and the interest of the patient. Obstetrics has a two-patient paradigm. We have we're blessed to have two patients. And so to ignore the needs of one of those patients is not beneficence. It is not non-maleficence, not harming the patient. Um, autonomy applies to an individual, but an individual does not have autonomy to end the life of another individual. And of course, justice says that we should all be treated fairly and equitably. And the most intrinsic right that we have is the right to life. So justice requires that we give everyone a, an opportunity for life. Um, sadly, medicine has sort of lost its way. It used to be, you know, you think back to the Marcus Welby, um, you know, a, a kindly experienced physician who would give recommendations to a patient based on his knowledge of that individual, his experience. We don't see that anymore. Now there is pressure I call it the vending machine model of medicine to give the patient what they come in and say that they want. Um, so hopefully medicine can make its way back from where it has strayed. Um, what about uh, this narrative that I'm sure you've heard? Chemical abortion is safer than Tylenol or penicillin. Of course, women are being driven toward self-managed chemical abortions with this narrative, but what do we really know? Um, to understand chemical abortion, you need to know it's two drugs approved by the FDA, Mifepristone blocks progesterone receptors, so it cuts off the hormonal support, ends up killing the embryo or the fetus, and it's followed in about 24 hours by mesoprostol that essentially induces labor to express the dead tissue. The experience for women is a terrible one. Most women will have almost all of the symptoms that you see here in blue. Um, the average woman will bleed for almost two weeks. 8% will bleed for longer than a month. 40% of these women describe the pain as severe, and that's not surprising because it's labor. Um, and so many of these women will see the child that they have chosen to ab abort in the toilet. And then, of course, the emotional heartache of knowing what you've done and what do you do now? Do you flush your child? Do you throw him in the trash? Do you take him in the backyard and bury him? Um, the process by which the FDA has approved these drugs and regulated it over the last 23 years has been highly politicized. It was approved in 2000. Initially, the regulations were fairly strict, only to be used up to seven weeks. Um, the provider had to be a physician, and he had to register to get access to these drugs. Um, complication reporting was mandatory, as were three visits. In 2016, um, this was extended to 10 weeks gestation. Those who were not physicians, such as nurse practitioners and midwives, could now prescribe it, even though they may not have the surgical skills to take care of the complications. The FDA said it didn't even want to know about complications at that point unless it killed a woman. And they said a follow-up visit was not next necessary. And it got worse. Um, using the COVID pandemic as an excuse, 
introduced the FDA um, a couple of years ago, permanently removed all the in-person supervision. That means face-to-face -face counseling labs, physical examination, and ultrasound are no longer required. It can now be distributed through brick-and-mortar pharmacies. It can be ordered by telemedicine or online, distributed in the mail, sometimes illegally, or through the pharmacies. Ultimately, the goal is over-the-counter provision. So what can happen to these women? Well, they're being asked to estimate their gestational age. They could be wrong. If they're wrong, the likelihood of failures, if they're further along, is um, much higher. Um, no one's reliably ruling out an ectopic pregnancy. These drugs don't work on an ectopic pregnancy, which can continue to grow, rupture, and can kill women. We're not doing labs. We're not detecting anemia. We're not detecting other uh, sexually transmitted infections that if untreated may lead to infertility. We're not looking for blood type to determine if a woman should have a Rogam um, injection if she's Rh negative, which can prevent future severe complications. And in fact, we're not even verifying that the person who is ordering the drugs is a woman who wants an abortion. So obviously this will benefit sex traffickers, incestuous abusers, and coercive men but not women. Um, we're not obtaining informed consent. We don't know how common complications are. And women, when they order these pills on a website, it's not telling them about alternatives. It's not telling them that there's 3,000 crisis pregnancy centers in this country that would love to walk alongside them and give them the support they need to bring their children to birth. Mifepristone has the FDA's strongest warning, a black box warning, telling doctors that women can present with a very serious infection without a fever, without an elevated white blood cell count, or without significant pain. Um, more than half of the deaths associated with mifepristone have been um, from Clostridium sordellae sepsis. This is a common organism found in dirt. It's usually not pathogenic, except when someone's immune system is compromised. Um, and in fact, last year there were two women uh, reported to have died um, from uh, Clostridium sordellae sepsis after chemical abortion. Uh, bleeding may also occur that can be stopped in no other way other than surgery. So why is it that it's so common to say this is safer than Tylenol when you can re clearly recognize from what I've told you it's not safer than Tylenol? Um, one thing is that we have almost nothing about data collection in our country that is mandatory. So we don't even know how many abortions occur. The states report voluntarily. Some states don't bother to report any numbers. The Guttmacher Institute gets information directly from abortion providers, and they consistently report far more abortions. Only half of the states require um, complication reporting from abortionists, even fewer from other doctors. And there's really no enforcement mechanism, or even a lot of these doctors are not even aware that these mandates exist. And so we see that complications are often not reported. Maternal mortality data is even worse. Uh, the CDC gets most of that data from death certificates. And there's a number of reasons that death certificates often do not report the abortion. Um, maternal mortality is any time from the beginning of a pregnancy, any event at the time of the end of the pregnancy, all the way to an, a year after the end of the pregnancy. And we're increasingly seeing, particularly related to abortion, that it's later deaths. It's women who have mental health complications. You can recognize that a suicide on the due date of an abortion that may have been coerced, clearly that would be an abortion-related death, but the CDC does not even try to pick up that type of data. Um, better quality data is available internationally. In Finland, uh, they documented 
that um, almost 19 out of 20 women who had an abortion-related death, there was no mention of the abortion on the death certificate. So what the um, CDC tells us is really just the tip of the iceberg. Going back to that chemical abortion is safer than Tylenol, the comparison that they're making is that there's about 600 Tylenol overdose deaths in our country every year. And they're comparing that to the approximately two deaths that they pick up from abortion, um, which is obviously a very dishonest comparison. Um, when we look at records linkage studies, so these are studies where we know all of the abortions that have been performed. Uh, generally, this is through a single payer healthcare system and then we can um, link them to subsequent medical events. We discovered that complications are very common after chemical abortion. In Finland, again, very good quality data. 6% of women require surgery to remove all of that retained tissue after a chemical abortion. Even after surgical abortions, 2% of the women required surgery. This graph demonstrates that complications are four times as frequent after a chemical abortion than a surgical one. Um, affecting one out of five women. And a, a study looking at later chemical abortions documented that 10% in the first trimester and almost 40% in the second trimester required surgery. Similar studies done here on the Medicaid population. There are 17 states that allow their Medicaid money to pay for, chemical, for, to pay for abortions. Um, we documented that within a month of the chemical abortion, 5% of the women, one out of 20, had an a, a emergency room visit for an abortion-related complication. 2% um, of those with surgical abortions also needed an emergency room visit. When we look closer, 60% of the time these were miscoded as having been due to a miscarriage. These women are being told by abortion providers, if you should need care, you don't have to say it was an abortion. And these women are ashamed. They don't want to say it was an abortion. Um, they tell them that it, the doctors can't tell the difference and that it won't change their care. But the reality is these miscoded women were not cared for appropriately. They averaged three visits to the emergency room before they finally got the surgery they needed. Uh, so clearly not safer than Tylenol. Um, does abortion cause mental health complications? Um, well, numerous studies have documented increased risk of anxiety, depression, alcohol and substance abuse, and self-harm following abortion. And these, of course, can lead to deaths of despair, suicide, homicide, accidental deaths, overdoses. Um, and there are subgroups of women that we know are at much higher risk to have mental, complication, mental health complications from abortion. Those who are pressured, that makes sense. Um, those who wanted the pregnancy, those who have prior mental health issues, prior abortions, later abortions, and young women, as well as some other risk factors. Many times abortion advocates will acknowledge that yes, mental health complications can follow abortion, but it's not the abortion that's the problem. These women are in crisis, it's the situations in their lives, or maybe they already had mental health complications before. So at Lozier, we went back to that database I told you about, the 17 states and the Medicaid, and we looked to see what did mental health look like before and after abortion and before and after childbirth in this population. And we discovered that after an abortion, a woman was twice as likely to require an outpatient mental health visit than a woman who carried her baby to term. She was almost three times as likely to require an inpatient hospitalization, which means she had a severe mental health event. And for those women who were hospitalized, they had seven times as many hospital days 
stay um, after an abortion compared to giving birth to a child. And then we looked before the pregnancy event to see were these women already more mentally unhealthy? And we found the opposite. We found that the women who gave birth to a child had had more pre-pregnancy mental health utilization than the women who aborted. So definitely put that narrative to rest um, that abortion does um, in some women cause mental health complications. Yes, sir. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's relative risk. And so um, it's a statistical term, and I'm not much of a statistician, but basically if it's a relative risk of two, that's double the risk. So um, three is triple the risk. Um, so surely women who choose abortions do so willingly, right? Uh, and, and their reasons are compelling. Well, Dave Reardon, one of our researchers, is really amazing and has such a passion to know about unwanted abortions. And two studies that he published recently based on survey data documented that 61% of women who'd had an abortion uh, reported high levels of pressure to abort often from family members, the father of the baby, sometimes from life circumstances. You may be aware we are increasingly seeing uh, work um, and, and corporations promoting abortion to their workers. Um, so there's a lot of uh, pressure on women to choose an action that they may not want. Of course, this was associated with more negative emotions, flashbacks to the abortion, feelings of grief and sadness. And these women said that they had an overall decline in their mental health, and they attributed it to their abortions. Um, additionally, that cohort was noted that only one out of three women said that this abortion was something they wanted. 24%, nearly a quarter, described the abortion as unwanted or coerced. 43% said they accepted it. They were in such a situation they didn't think they had another choice, but it was inconsistent with their values or preferences. And again, these are probably the women that are sitting in the church. 60% um, said they would have preferred to give birth if they had received more support or they were in a more financially secure position. Um, Eight states document reasons that women choose abortions in their states. And those compelling reasons that we always hear about, rape and incest, risk to a mother's life, um, ab severe abnormalities in the baby, they all comprise less than 5% of abortions. So again, more than 95% of abortions in our country are for social or financial reasons. And the Guttmacher Institute has documented some of these reasons. They thought that they couldn't go to school and have a baby at the same time or work and have a baby at the same time. They couldn't afford a baby. Or uh, so many of these women choose abortion because of relationship problems, because the father is not willing to support them. Frederick Matthews Green is a pro-life feminist, and I love some of her quotes. Uh, this one just really speaks to me. For the question remains, do women want abortion? Not like she wants a Porsche or an ice cream cone. Like an animal caught in a trap, trying to gnaw off its own leg, a woman who seeks abortion is trying to escape a desperate situation by an act of violence and self-loss. Abortion is not a sign that women are free, but a sign that they are desperate. And our country can do so much better than it's doing to support women, only offering them this as a solution to their problem. What about late abortions? Are they rare and are they almost always uh, obtained for compelling reasons? 10% of the abortions, we have approximately a million abortions in our country every year. 10% occur after the first trimester. So these need to be done by a DNE, which is a, a, more, um, a more dangerous surgical procedure. Um, again, around 100,000 a year. Um, 
1% are done after the baby can survive separated from his mother at viability. So that's about 22 weeks on a 40-week pregnancy. So we are one of only about seven countries in the world, alongside China, North Korea, other human rights violators, that allows these elective abortions after the child can survive separated from his mother. And when we look, we discover that actually the vast majority of those are also elective. Um, only two states actually look for the reasons that late abortions happen, but they document that about 12%, a little bit more um, um, than overall, are performed for life, health, rape, incest, or severe fetal abnormalities. And when we look at abortion industry studies, we actually find something very concerning. So many of these women report indecision as a factor. They didn't know if they wanted the abortion um, and relationship problems. So I think we can read between the lines there. Nine months is a long time for a woman who wants to give birth to her child to say no to a coercive man. And yet that is what our country is allowing, nine months for him to wear her down. And I think that, and I've talked to women, this is so often the reason for these dangerous late abortions. They finally couldn't say no anymore. Um, what about the uh, a baby being born alive after an abortion? There's some discussion about this. Of course, you'll hear the abortion industry say this never happens, no way. Um, an abortion by DNA dismemberment, of course, is very unlikely to result in a live baby. He's literally pulled apart by the surgical instruments. But a very late abortion, as you might imagine, a baby that's nearly the size of a term infant would be very hard to dismember. So, so many of these abortions are performed by labor induction. A recent survey of late-term abortionists documented that nearly 7 out of 10 do not routinely kill the baby first. And as an obstetrician, I can tell you, most babies who deliver through labor survive labor. So I think we have to recognize the fact that there are babies born alive in this country and that they are killed by active or passive infanticide and no one is watching. So we have now gone from being a country that will kill its um, children in utero to a country that will commit infanticide. And I think you all know because you're leaders in the church, what happened to Israel when they began sacrificing their children to Molech. Um, so what about, do these babies feel pain? Well, pro-abortion medical organizations like ACOG try to make the most extreme definition of pain that they can. They will say, they don't have pain until the third trimester because their cerebral cortex is not fully developed until that point. Well, those of you that have teenagers um, probably know that actually um, the cerebral cortex is not fully developed until age 25. So, you know, it's, it, they, they require the ability to form an emotional response to pain before they'll call it pain. So this is, of course, very extreme. We know that the, um, the neural tracts that detect pain are completely in place by 12 to 15 weeks. Um, and this little baby's he's, a, he's further along than 15. I'd say he's probably about five or six months. But look at his face. This is a face that's in pain. We all recognize that. At 15 weeks, if you take a needle transabdominally and stick it into the intrahepatic um, vein, which is full of nerve endings for the baby, 
He will react exactly the same way we would if someone did that to us. He will withdraw and try to get away from the stimulus. Vigorous body and breathing motions. We'll see his heart rate increase, his blood flow to his brain increase. If we measured his blood, we'd see increase in circulating adrenaline. And also endogenous opioids, which are the body's way of trying to suppress a pain response. So of course they feel pain when they're dismembered. Um, we all know that it's been an interesting year. Um, it really was a miracle, I think, that the Supreme Court overturned Roe in the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health care decision. But in its wake, we've seen so much misinformation. And I want to help you to counter this. Um, the 25 states immediately got on board. They passed laws protecting unborn life. So good for them. The other 25 went the other direction. The abortion industry sued every single state. So some of these states, the ones you see here in yellow, are still fighting in court to be able to implement their laws. But immediately, the media came out with this whole narrative that women will die, um, doctors can't perform necessary medical treatment for women, maternal mortality will increase. The good news, um, an attorney and I looked at every state's law and Every single state that is protecting unborn life allows an exception if an abortion is needed to protect a mother's life or to prevent a serious risk to her health. Um, unfortunately, a lot of doctors don't know that. But the good news is it's very, very rare for this to be needed. In fact, vanishingly rare, I would say. I've been practicing for 30 years. I've never needed to do a direct abortion, although there have been times I've needed to induce labor to protect a mom when I didn't think the baby could survive. Um, so again, when those situations happen, they usually happen later in pregnancy when the baby can survive. But even if he's too young or too sick to survive, induction and perinatal palliative care, which most hospitals will offer, means that the woman can hold her baby. If he lives for a little while, she can say goodbye to him. She can bury him. She can photograph him. This is such a better way to help her, her and the family with their grief response than to dismember this baby. There's nobody to grieve. Um, um, maternal mortality. We have shameful maternal mortality rates in the United States. Ours are the highest in the developed world, despite the fact that we spend so much money on health care. But when you look, we have such high abortion rates. So there's a correlation there. And unfortunately, in the black population, their maternal mortality rates are three times higher than white women, but they also have maternal or uh, abortion rates three to four times that. So what we're seeing, I think, is that abortion does not protect from maternal mortality. There's probably many ways that abortion is leading to an increased risk of maternal mortality. Um, there have been studies that have said abortion is safer than childbirth. Again, I told you how poor quality the CDC maternal mortality data is, particularly in detecting abortion-related deaths. So this is a very dishonest comparison. We don't know how many women die related to abortion, and um, they should not have published that study. They knew the data was bad, but it was useful for their propaganda. Again, if we go to a records linkage um, a country where we can do records linkage, we find something different. Um, in European countries where we can do this, we discover that in the year following an abortion, because maternal mortality is measured all the way from the beginning of a pregnancy to the year after the pregnancy ends, 
a woman is two to four times as likely to die of any cause, six to seven times as likely to commit suicide, two to four times as likely to die of an accident, and 10 to 14 times as likely to be murdered. So actually childbirth is protective and abortion is the risk for maternal mortality. Um, three quick re or uh, 10 quick reasons that I think maternal mortality will decrease in states that are protecting unborn life. It allows intervention if it's truly needed. It'll limit those more dangerous later abortions. It will prevent some future pregnancy complications that are related to surgical damage, um, such as preterm labor and abnormal placental attachment. It'll prevent future mental health disorders in many women. Um, will lead to women delivering their children at a younger age, which we have known since the Middle Ages is protective against breast cancer later in life. Reduce the incidence of repeat abortions. Many women fall into this pattern of one abortion and then many more, um, which are associated with all-cause mortality. Um, hopefully, it'll lead to fathers taking responsibility, reducing the rates of single motherhood and um, poverty. It's not going to lead to illegal coat hanger abortions. Um, that's a myth since before the time of Roe. Uh, unfortunately, women will probably revert to chemical abortions, but those are not as dangerous as an instrumentation. It'll encourage men and women to change their sexual behavior and use more reliable contraception, which will decrease unintended pregnancies and we can all see would be a good thing. And when we look at other countries, we've not seen an increase in maternal mortality there. What time is this supposed to end? Are we supposed to end at 11 or when's your next? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I'll just, I'm going to zing through the rest. There's actually a lot. And if you need to leave, please do. But um, so... You know, so many people say, yeah, you know, I get it all, but women still need it, so we should still have it available. But, but is it improving women's lives the way we think? Do they uh, benefit economically? It's kind of standard wisdom that this is the case. But actually, when we look at the studies, we see that they hedge their bets. They say it may lead to this outcome. It may infer this result. We would anticipate that the poverty rate for unmarried women with children would be much higher if abortion was protective. But actually, we see the opposite. Unmarried women without children, for whatever reason, have a higher poverty rate. Um, we mentioned the black population already. They have a lot of abortions, and they have a very high poverty rate. A long-term study in Norway documented that, yes, of course, there's a short-term income drop when moms choose to stay home and raise their children. But over time, the incomes um, converge. So it's not something that lasts forever. And of course, there's this benefit of having this beautiful child. Um, economists um, sometimes say the quiet part out loud. Jonathan Gruber, who um, spearheaded the ACA, said abortion saves the government money because it results in fewer children who require social services. So very jaded way to look at it. And of course, Janet Yellen is very similar. She says, restricting access to abortion would have very damaging effects on the economy. Again, finances over human life. But the U.S. Joint Economic Commission has estimated that the loss of those lives actually cost the country much more. 2019, the CDC reported 630,000 abortions. If those children had li have lived, they would have benefited our economy by $6.9 trillion, 32% of our GDP at that time. The loss, the, the mother's earning loss versus the future earnings of those children, 425% um, larger. So that would have been that economic uh, benefit from those children living. And of course, we all know our, our social programs are in, in, 
uh, in trouble, right? Because we don't have as many workers. But if we had allowed those children to be born, our population would be 20% larger. There would be 45 million more people in the workforce today. Um, how about happiness? The so general social survey um, has been documenting happiness for the last 50 years, and women's happiness scores have gone like this. They are not as happy. They are, something's going on. Marriage status is one of the highest um, um, attributes that contributes to happiness, and I think we've all seen that marriage has gone down over the same time period. Women's sexual behavior has changed, much more promiscuous sex. They're contracting sexually transmitted infections. They're having dysfunctional relationships. When they do have children, we also often see an emotional disconnect. We hardly ever see a shotgun marriage anymore, right? So we're missing opportunities for marriage and childbirth because of easy access to abortion, but we're seeing increasing fragile families, single mothers, absent fathers, and troubled children. Um, these are, I'm going to read these to you, and I know it's kind of long, but I, the, was this necessary for feminine to, feminism to embrace abortion so completely? Mary Wollstonecraft was an early feminist from the uh, late 1800s. Having known oppression, we cannot stand by and allow the oppression of an entire class of weaker human beings. Having once been owned by our husbands, we cannot condone a position that says the unborn are owned by their mothers. Remembering a time when our value was determined by whether a man wanted us, we refuse to bow to the patriarchal attitude that says the unborn child's value is determined by whether a woman wants her. Um, so even though that was a long time ago, abortion was an option, but they stood against it. And Frederick Matthews Green that I re quoted earlier said, in no sane society are women and their unborn children treated as mortal enemies. Surely any society that makes a mother and child enemies is slowly committing suicide. When circumstances make a woman feel so desperate that killing her own child seems the only way to survive, the problem is not inside her body, but outside it. Abortion adapts the woman's body to her hostile surroundings, bypassing her problems without resolving them. When she becomes pregnant again or when her sister or daughter becomes pregnant, the same overwhelming pressures will be there to demand another abortion. Ethicist Daniel Callahan has remarked that if legal abortion has given women more choice, it has also given men more choices as well. They now have a potent new weapon in the old business of manipulating and abandoning women. You may have seen the headlines. Britney Spears um, reported recently that when she was dating Justin Timberlake, they conceived a baby, and he, he coerced her into an abortion. She wanted to keep that child, but he did not want to be a father. So we see that this is affecting privileged and underprivileged women alike, this, these pressures. Um, these women are not um, pro-life. Um, they're modern feminists, but they have documented that this is just not working for women. Louise Perry said the outpouring of rage and sorrow in the Me Too movement was evidence of a sexual culture that was not working for women. Christine Emba, a Washington Post reporter, um, quoted a woman saying, bad sex can leave you feeling violated, sick, confused. There isn't anyone to blame. No one forced you to participate. You could have said no and you didn't. You didn't have the words and didn't have the courage to say them. Too much of the time, bad sex is the norm for young women, not the exception. So that's where women are today, obviously being harmed. Um, I didn't put this on my list of myths because I couldn't fit it, but it, there's a bonus myth. Um, and that is that advocating for unborn life will make you popular. I'm sorry to say, if you come away from this and say, I have got to talk about this issue, you are not going to be popular. Somebody mentioned to me yesterday that they Googled me and discovered that Google hates me. And I know Twitter hates me. And... Um, 
you know, that's just, that's just how it's going to fall. What does the Bible say? If we were of this world, the world would love us as its own, but because we are not of this world, but he chose us out of this world, the world hates us. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Um, from the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. So thank you guys for your attention. Um, I wish I had time to stay for questions, but um, I have to catch a plane. But again, feel free to email me uh, if you want. And um, hopefully you learned something and, uh, you know, are motivated to address this issue. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this session from the 2023 Shepherds 360 Church Leaders Conference. This material is copyrighted and may not be altered or sold. For information, please visit shepherds360.org.